Last week we started a new series on decision making, one of the most terrifying subjects anybody uh, can think of. Uh, whenever they do surveys, uh, the, the greatest fear is always public speaking. Uh, I think decision making is probably high on this list, so just imagine where I am this morning giving a public address about decision making. That's pretty bad, it's a fearful subject. Uh, so we ta started to tackle this last week, and we're doing this from the book of Proverbs to press ahead into God's wisdom about all of the, the issues of our life, and decision-making is one of the, the crucial areas where I believe our faith and walk with God stands or falls. We can talk about the grace of God, we can talk about the principles of his word. We can talk about his power. We can talk about walking by the Holy Spirit, being led by the Lord Jesus Christ. But it all stands or falls. It all changes from just talk to being real life in our decision making. You can put it more simply. If we are not making actual decisions to follow Jesus Christ on a day-to-day -day basis, then we are not walking with him. Whatever songs we may sing, whatever we may think, whatever verses we may read, whatever doctrinal knowledge we may collect, our faith and walk with God stands or falls on how we make decisions. And I'll go even further whether we see the grace of God at work in our lives, whether we see him in motion in our lives, whether we see his power, is really dependent on whether we will step up to the challenge that Proverbs has laid down for us and that we saw in uh, our text last week that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And that for us to really walk with God, we need to make a primary decision about who we are and how we are to live life. And that primary decision is whether we will live in the fear of God, pursuing his knowledge, his will, his wisdom, or whether we will scoff at it, disregard it, ignore it, and think of ourselves as capable of living life without it. This is a primary destiny-setting decision. How you make this decision decides how you do everything else in the Christian life. So that's actually a, a very heavy thing to say, and it's going to get even heavier because what I want to say to you this morning is we're living in the grip of a kind of helpless spirituality that wants God to take our limp limbs, our drooping hands, wants God to step into our indecision, fear, and unbelief and make us the people we ought to be while we are passive, limp, 
and basically inert in his presence. And sometimes this is actually taught as the grace of God that somehow God does these things like a puppet master. He pulls the string here and the arm goes up. And he pulls the string over here and our leg goes out. And we just do what his grace pulls us into doing. And what I want to challenge us with not only this morning but in the weeks to come is that we need, starting now, urgently, to stop being helpless Christians in our decision-making. God gave us his wisdom in his word. He gave us his wisdom in the person of the Holy Spirit of God who lives in us and takes his word and applies it to our hearts. He gave us all of these things at the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. He is making us to be godly decision makers. That is, his, that is the essence of his will and work in our lives. And so we're confronting some things in this series about what we believe, about making decisions, about what we are called to do uh, as Christians, and we're confronting some things about ourselves, not our confidence in ourselves, we shouldn't have any, but our confidence in God and his call upon our lives. Um, what we're going to do this morning is look at this very brief proverb in Proverbs 19 and verse 3. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. We're going to meditate on that proverb this morning. And as I, was, as I was preparing this morning, the, the biggest burden that I had was not to bring to you something so heavy this morning that it ends up being something where you leave feeling ashamed, blamed for everything that... Uh, is happening in your life. I want us to reach a place where our understanding of God and His grace is positive, where we truly understand how good and gracious He is. But the more I tried to find a positive way to address this verse, the more my heart and the Spirit of God, I believe, in me was saying, Rayleigh, just preach the verse. <laughs> Let people hear what they need to hear. So let's start out with this issue of blame. The number one no-no today is blaming the victim. You don't blame the victim for anything that has happened to the victim, right? This verse is going right up to this line that we have drawn in the sand. Never blame the victim. And this verse is crossing that line and daring us to do something about it. So let me start by saying 
there are good reasons why we should not blame victims for the things that happen to them. Number one, uh, the, the reason child abuse, sexual abuse, the reason any kind of crime is so dehumanizing and degrading is because one of the things abusers do is they get their victims in a mind frame that their decisions don't matter. They have no agency, they have no power to do anything about their situation, and that in fact they deserve the abuse that is coming upon them. This happens so frequently in our society. And so, and on the one hand, it is wrong, deeply wrong, to blame a victim. There, there is a sense in which we are joining the abuser in shifting responsibility for what he or she has done to somebody onto the object of, of the abuse. And we don't want to do that. Furthermore, there's something that happens in sermons in churches like ours where shame can almost come to be the goal. Your job is to feel good and bad about yourself. And my job is to help you do that. <laughs> Brian Chappell calls this Protestant penance. He says he had a contract with the first church that he had. All the people were depressed. They would come into church on Sunday morning and his job as the preacher was to give them all the reasons why they were horrible people and why they should feel terrible. And then they agreed with him, agreed that they were horrible people, felt terrible, and then walked away from church feeling that bad. And this was the grace of God. This was how we kind of earned back God's favor by feeling terrible. So the second thing that I would say in, in addition to the object here is not to blame victims for what happens to them. My second statement would be our objective this morning is not that everyone feels shame. That's not the goal here. As we grapple with this verse we need to understand that when we take responsibility for the decisions we have made, there is a dignity, a peace, and a joy on the other side of taking our responsibilities. That's what we want. If you're leaving in shame this morning, understand that that's not where I want to leave you as your pastor. I want to take you all the way to the other side of this decision that you need to make, to take responsibility for the decisions that you've made in the past and not shift blame for those decisions. But even beyond that, we need to confront the fact that very often when we come away from the scriptures feeling blamed, shamed, shunned, we can walk out of a church service feeling very alone, isolated. And so I don't want you to feel that way either. What we're talking about here is not God pointing the finger at you and saying, you horrible worm of a person. You should feel good and terrible about yourself. 
And then we all walk away with that feeling of alienation from God, that feeling of hostility from God. We're going to come full circle this morning. We're going to go through the conviction of sin that we ought to rightly feel. But we're going to come out the other side to the gospel, and we're going to see that Jesus Christ did not die on the cross to leave us alienated, shamed, and alone. He died on the cross to save us from our sins. So with all of those things in mind, with all of those caveats, and I hope clarifications on what we're going to do this morning, I do want to make this statement. Taking responsibility for your decisions is not blaming the victim. It's not. It is true We should not take responsibility for other people's sins. But what we're going to see this morning is that in our decision-making, we have made foolish decisions, and we need to own them. We need to get our hands around them, and we need to say, I did this, or we did this. God did not do it. My parents didn't do it. My spouse didn't do it. My kids didn't do it. No one did this to me. For this decision, I am responsible. We need to get to that place. That is not blaming the victim. Blaming the victim is the victim taking responsibility for other people's sins around them. This is taking responsibility for our sins. The New Testament calls this confession. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. First, we're going to look at folly. We're going to get a a view of what Proverbs has to say about it. And then we're going to look at rage. The rage the fool feels when life collapses around him and he's looking for somebody to blame. And then we're going to give some gospel direction to what to do with the responsibility that we have for the decisions that we make. Let's begin by orienting ourselves about this word folly in um, the book of Proverbs as a whole and what the wisdom of God has to say about folly. I saw something horrible this week. It happened a few feet away from me. I was sitting in my, uh, my other office downtown, in a coffee shop, and I was sitting right in the window. I was right on the sidewalk. And a, a homeless woman who I had not seen before, I know many of the homeless people downtown by sight. Some of them I know their names. This one I had not seen before. She came up and she sat with her cart Uh, She sat on one of the benches there, and that's not what was horrible. That's normal for downtown. Someone came up to her with a brown bag. brown bag was full of food. Handed her the bag with a smile and walked on. They had gone into a store, seen her, purchased lunch for her handed it to her, and just walked on. And so uh, this woman 
began to open up this bag and look in this lunch. There was a, a carton of perhaps soup or some kind of salad or something. Uh, there, there, were, there was a, a drink in there. There was a, an orange in there. It was, it was good, freshly made food. She sat there for a while, ate the food, and then this is the horrible thing. She took that carton, she threw it in the gutter, took the bag and just threw it right next to the carton. She took the orange and threw it at the window. I had to, I had to take some time to actually process what I had just seen there. Because what I saw was an act of goodness met with an attitude of scoffing, disdain, contempt, and animosity. That after taking the goodness, this person was going to pour out abuse in response. Now, I tell that story to do a couple of things. First, I am not telling the story to stigmatize all homeless people. I have seen homeless people going around downtown picking up trash and putting it in the trash can, left by other people who very transparently were not homeless. I've seen that, and you've seen that too. And I have seen... Um, Wealthy, entitled people respond with that exact same kind of contempt toward the goodness of others. So this isn't about a homeless person. But this is about our attitude as a society about what goodness is, what gratitude is, what right responses are, and what folly is. And what our attitudes as Christians are toward these things. Here's what the Bible says about folly. If you turn to Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, the verse we landed on last week, the theme verse for the book of Proverbs, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What is folly? It's an attitude. It's a point of view on life. And that point of view on life is, I despise you. I despise what you think. I have contempt for what you think you know. I don't want to deal with you. I don't want to hear from you. I've got my own life, my own way, and I'm going to live it my own way, and no one has the right to tell me what to do had someone, uh, a couple, in for uh, premarital counseling, one of the uh, more fun things that I do. And uh, they were talking with some friends, where are you going this evening? They said to premarital counseling. And their friend's response was, you mean you're going to someone to have them tell you what is right and wrong? Why would you do that? Scoffing. It's an attitude on life that says, I already know the correct answer. I don't need you to tell me. 
And I especially don't need you to correct me because I've already got this. I know what my priorities are. I know what is right for me. And I'm going to go do that. So just stay out of my way. Proverbs says this attitude is the opposite of the fear of the Lord. It is the beginning of ruin in a person's life. We'll see that in a moment. So we've got an attitude here. Um, That's the attitude I saw on display this week with that, that woman who took what was given to her and turned it into litter and then threw another part, threw an orange at a window full of other people. That kind of hostility against anyone having anything to do with me that might say, you're kind of off track there. You need to turn, you need to change, you need to adjust your course in life. That, that kind of attitude is the attitude of a scoffer. And fundamentally, it has nothing to do with what you do necessarily. It has nothing to do with your status in life. It has nothing to do with your economic status. There are very wealthy people uh, who are scoffers. There are very poor people who are wise. You can flip that around. There are very wealthy people who are wise and godly wisdom has gotten, to that, gotten them to that place. There are very poor people who are not victims. They are poor because of the things they've decided to do, the attitudes they've decided to take on life. So what we're saying here is scoffing as an attitude is is that first crossroads that we're in in the book of Proverbs. The first and most critical decision we make is the decision, will I fear God or will I be a scoffer? Will I be a fool? Let me make a couple of very strong statements. Evangelical Christians in the United States have become fools. We have elevated ourselves over the scriptures and we have decided that we have the right to decide when and where to hear them, whether to study them at all, whether it matters at all to hear from God. Sometimes we have decided that we really don't need the scriptures at all. We just need God's voice in our hearts. As if you could divide the two. As if the scriptures ever puts any daylight between the voice of God in the text and his voice in our hearts. He does not. And so you've got this situation that we talk about a lot here, in which evangelicals in America want to lecture our country about how to live and how to be wise, but we've put ourselves above the scriptures. You say, can you you be more specific? Yes, I can. I met a guy uh, who I had known several years ago, hadn't seen him in a long time, 
used to attend uh, another church that that I uh, was pastor of. And um, very learned man, learned in the scriptures, good doctrinal positions. He cares about doctrine. Uh, he, he reads a lot about it. Um, and so I asked him, where are you attending church? I think you know the answer that's coming. We're not. Yeah, we, you know, we've been kind of convicted about that. Oh, really? Well, that's good. Um, they, I, I call them the, the roving Calvinists. I don't know any other way to call this. Because they, they're, they're better than every church. They're better than every church. And sometimes it's a roving spirit-filled person. And sometimes it's a roving Arminian. And sometimes it's a roving end-times expert. But they're better than all the churches. And they don't want to get shoulder to shoulder with actual people who have real problems and deal with those problems. And they especially don't want to sit through sermons. Unless they have something... Uh, critical or positive to say about them. Um, so we've got this attitude as American evangelicals that we set the terms for God and his kingdom and his work. So if we compare that attitude with Proverbs 1.7, beloved, we have already made a disastrous decision for our life as Christians in this country. That's, that's a done deal. And there will be no future for us as Christians in this country until we take responsibility for having made that decision and turn from it. This is called confession and repentance. So that's the first thing that Proverbs says <clears throat> about folly. The second thing it says about it is that it's a pattern. It's not just an attitude. It's a way of life. It's a, it's a way of going through every decision that you make, everything that you do. It's a way of, um, of um, thinking about your life, making your decisions. Uh, let's look at um, Proverbs 15. Let's look at a couple of examples of this. Proverbs 15 and verse 12. <clears throat> Short proverb here. A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. Now think about that. Scoffer does not like to be reproved. Well, I don't like to be reproved. So what is the hope for a scoffer or a fool? It's to break the pattern of decision-making in his or her life. And in order to do that, what would the scoffer need? Wisdom, right? 
another perspective from God on the decisions that he or she is making and how do you unmake those decisions, how do you change the decisions that you make. Well, you need to get that wisdom from somewhere, so you would go to the wise in order to get that, that kind of wisdom, right? Well, this says a scoffer does not like to be reproved. It's too negative, such a downer. Um, he will not go to the wise. How is he going to break the pattern if he or she will not seek out that other way of looking at his or her life? How is that actually going to happen? One of the things that Solomon is saying is it won't. In order for the pattern to change, you have to go talk to the people who have the wisdom you need and who have the ability to put that across to you in such a way that you can't ignore it. It's called being reproved. And basically what Solomon is saying here is the scoffer won't change the pattern because he won't go to the wise. He doesn't like to be reproved. Um, one of the things that is most characteristic of our society is that we only hang around with and listen to the people who are just like us people who have our point of view on politics, doctrine, spirituality, lifestyle, whatever it may be. We want to hang out with those people. And what this is doing is it is locking in folly. I hope you see this. Because if you never encounter someone who is different from you, and if you never encounter someone who has the ability to say, why are you doing that? you just talked about how you're short of money, but you also just talked about spending money on this. Why are you doing that? We don't like that kind of reproof, so we don't seek it out and we don't listen to it when we get it. Um, so there's, there's something happening in that lady who threw... Who, took goodness and turned it into litter. What's happening there is she's saying, my point of view is the only point of view that matters. And I'm not going to have regard for what you gave me or the goodness that you showed me. I'm going to just throw it in the gutter after I consume it. What is this saying? I'm rejecting you, I'm rejecting your point of view, I'm rejecting your goodness, but I'm going to take from you. This is disastrous. It's disastrous in, a, in an individual's life and it's disastrous culturally. So that's one thing the Proverbs says about this. Go to uh, Proverbs, um, I believe it's uh, 27 and verse 22, another example of this. This one could be a, a meme. It could be a cartoon. It's devastating. Crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain. So get that picture in, in your mind. If I'm a fool... That means drop me in a mortar and take a pestle 
and smash me with it. Grind me up with all the rest of the grain. Do all of that violent stuff to me. Maybe then I'll learn, right? That's what we keep thinking. When they finally hit bottom, when it gets tough enough for them, when it gets hard enough for them, when the difficulties are insurmountable, maybe then God can come into their life and do something. And Solomon is saying, no. Crush a fool in a mortar and with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. This is as good, accurate, sound an assessment of our society and our spirituality as I think you can find anywhere in the Bible. Because what we keep saying is, I want God to do something about the troubles in my life. I want him to provide what I need. I want him to, to lift me up. I want him to encourage me. I want him to give me joy and peace and all of these things. And I want him to have his way with me. And I want him to, to do all of these things for me. But I'm just passive. I'm not the decision maker here. God is, because I can do nothing. Only he can do all of these things. And so I'm just going to sit here in the repeated actions and decisions that I make, and I'm not going to do anything about them. I'm not going to make different decisions. I'm just going to throw it all up and let go and let God. Beloved, this says that there is a point at which God steps back and lets disaster happen. And I think one of the things that, as your pastor, I need to just say straight out to you this morning, is that God is doing this right now in our country. He's doing it in churches. I went, um, you know, I went back to Kentucky last week and had a chance to reconnect with uh, some of my fellow students back there and colleagues and hear how it's going. And uh, I was talking with one of my dear friends there and uh, we were talking about uh, just a devastating experience that he had had in a church, as pastoring a church in Kentucky, and how he was only after a couple of years kind of getting back on track to see where the Lord is calling him next. And um, at the same time that he had been going through that a couple of years ago, I had been going through some very hard things, and we had talked about and prayed about all of those things. And so he said to me, well, how's, how's it going with you? I said, it's going so well. The Lord is good. He is blessing. He is, there, is, there are different things happening now than were happening three, four years ago. It is so fantastic to see God's grace and what he's doing in his people. And my, my brother, my colleague said to me, I didn't expect to hear that. 
You know what's going on in churches across our country? Self-will, destructive behavior, and indecision and fear. You put all of those into a mix, and you've got American Christianity. And um, this is getting no real attention. I've never seen an article about this, but I have not talked to a single pastor anywhere in this town, in other towns, who would not say the same thing. There is warfare in churches. Some of it's from the bottom up, some of it's from the top down. It goes both ways in terms of the wrong and the responsibility for that. One of the things that God is saying to us through a verse like, you can crush a fool, yet his folly will not depart from him. This is God saying to us, how bad does it have to get before you realize the decisions you're making and make different ones? How bad does the pressure have to get? It's something he said to Israel over and over again, and he's saying it to us. Um, there is a third thing that Proverbs says about folly, and that is that folly is the ruin of the fool. The end of the fool is destruction. And um, so look with me at a, a, just a couple of verses on this. Um, Proverbs 18 Verses 6 and 7, I was struck that when David Calkins read these two verses, everybody chuckled, as well we should. Because fools are funny, and sometimes we just got to step back and laugh at them and, and laugh at ourselves. But here's what... Solomon says in uh, chapter 18, verse 6, a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites, invites a beating. Uh, this is the guy who's asking for it and he's going to get it. This is the, the woman who's asking for it and she's going to get it. Life is going to deal this blow because the way the mouth goes, it's too belligerent, it's too willful, it's insulting, and arrogance is pouring forth. And what is the response to that? The smackdown. That's what the response is. So the fool's mouth, uh, lips walk into a fight. His mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin. Think about that. Let me, let's just turn this around. If you could ruin your life by talking, would it change how you talked? Proverbs says you can ruin your life by talking. It happens. And so here, the basic idea is um, the fool's behavior, his attitude, his patterns of behavior the, the persistence in this, um, the same decision over and over again, just going to shoot my mouth off, it is his ruin. Look finally at Proverbs 29 and verse 1. One more illustration of this. 
29.1. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. So this is saying chance after chance after chance, warning after warning after warning. The scoffer says, I don't need it. I don't want it. I'm a survivor. I'm going to get through this. I've got this. And God says, so have I. And there are limits to this. So with all of that in mind, let us look at the rage of a fool. This will go somewhat faster because with all of the context here uh, from the book of Proverbs about folly in our decision-making, chapter 19, verse 3, makes total sense. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. So the folly that started out as an attitude of scoffing toward everything that he had ever heard, any kind of correction, that attitude hardened into a pattern of decision-making. And there was no breaking that pattern. It it didn't matter how many well-intentioned people went up to him and said, you're kind of doing this wrong. And, and he didn't listen. And there's, there's no change in his decision-making. In fact, he isolated himself from all of the people who were reproving him so that he didn't have to listen to all the negativity. And so he did all of that. And now in this pattern of folly, the results of his decisions or her decisions have been accumulating debts, broken relationships, um, false priorities, idols, pile after pile after pile of folly piling up around him and eventually it all just breaks and he is broken beyond healing. It is his ruin and this verse says, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, that's what it's talking about, really the whole book of Proverbs. When that happens, his heart softens and he realizes that he is a sinner and he cries out to God, forgive me for all of the things that I have done against you. Is this what you read in Proverbs 19.3? No. What happens? When his his way comes to ruin, his heart softens rages against the Lord. So what is this? His heart becomes captive to helpless anger. Helplessness. Can't do anything. I can't fix this. This is bigger than I am. And I've been praying and I've been been, you know, trying to, I've been worshiping God, I've been trying to seek His face, and nothing is breaking this situation that I am in. It's too big for me. And so the heart becomes filled with helpless anger. Anger is always helpless. There's nothing empowering about anger. There's nothing smart about anger. Anger simply... Um, unleashes a torrent of abuse out of that feeling of I can't do anything else and I'm in pain, I'm in ruin and so I'm going to make somebody hurt just as much as I hurt. That's all I can do. 
So here in, in this verse, the heart becomes filled with helpless anger. And where does that go? The heart has a target. His heart rages against the Lord. So what does that look like? Where was God when this terrible thing happened to me? Where was God when I lost my family? Where was God when I lost my marriage? Where was God when I lost all of that money and needed it back? Where was God when I lost all my friends? Where was God when I was in agony and in grief and he was nowhere? He was silent. And he did nothing to stop this ruin. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, God wouldn't do that. God's gracious, right? He's merciful. He won't give us anything we can't handle. Have you read that bumper sticker? You heard that sermon? I don't know where people get this. He gives me stuff I can't handle all the time. Life, ministry, family, spirituality is beyond me every day. It's too much. And so uh, this idea that somehow God does not let pain intrude upon our lives or the idea that he should not and that when he does something terrible is happening to us something unfair something unjust beloved this is a fallen world pain and death are bound up in it because it's under a curse that we brought on ourselves And because we're in this world, pain is in this world. And there's only one way out, and that is through the loving, redemptive, painful power of God that comes into our lives, takes the pain we are suffering, and redeems it for His purposes. So we're, we're looking at this verse and, and we're really identifying more with the heart that rages against the Lord. How could you let this happen? How could you let this happen to our country, to our state, to our city? How could you bring this, this pain into our lives? Well, there's a reality that we need to come to here and that reality is about responsibility. Who is responsible for the pain, really? Who is responsible for the the things that are wrong, the, the difficulties in our lives? Not God. It is not his fault. Um... Before I go any further, I want to clarify something. Just again, for the sake of of being as precise and focused as I can. There is in this fallen world 
natural evil, disease, cancer, natural disasters, earthquakes, droughts, all of these kinds of things because that's the cursed world that we're living in. Not everything that happens to us, I would even say not even a fraction of the things that happen to us are God's justice upon us, even upon the unsaved. God is good. He is merciful. And he does not allow life as life to pay us back as we deserve. He doesn't. And when that moment comes, when the man's folly brings his way to ruin and his heart rages against the Lord, God's reply to that rage is, all I have shown you is grace and more grace, mercy and more mercy. I have provided for you, protected you, saved you. I have saved your life. I have saved your bank account. I have saved your job. I have saved your house. I have saved your family day after day after day. I have been there in all of this with you. Why would your heart now rage against me? Because I am allowing you to see a small bit of life's reply to your decisions. Why would you rage at me about that? These are very hard things to say. Does God run out of grace? No. We can even say confidently that when someone is at the place of chapter 19 and verse 3 and his heart is raging against the Lord, even there, God's grace is intervening and God is listening and God is talking, speaking, replying. Even there, he is protecting, leading if we will stop the rage and listen. So God never runs out of grace. In Jesus Christ on the cross, he purchased more grace than we can run through. And that's good news. But the reality is, he does bring us to the place where our folly destroys our way and we come to ruin and it's at that point, if this is you today, and your heart is raging against the Lord, my plea to you is stop raging. You've got the wrong bad actor here. The solution for your heart is to cease the rage and the blame of the people around you, God, and to take your responsibility in the situation that you are in, whatever that responsibility may be. Let's give some direction about that. And here we're really talking about the gospel. At that moment where our hearts rage against the Lord, we realize that all decision-making is a heart issue and the condition of our heart is first and foremost before 
before God, and that's the thing that he cares about the most. And so, what is the way forward if this is the rage that you are feeling this morning, and you're realizing it, and you're saying, that's me, what do I do? How do I stop this? You need to go back over your decisions, and the first thing you need to do is you need to confess before God the things uh, uh, that you have done. I would also say, uh, even prior to that or with that, you need to forgive. One of the things that happens when our way comes to ruin is that we want to make people pay. We want to see them suffer as we have suffered. We want to somehow inflict the cost of all that we have gone through on them. And the direction of the gospel is, no, release them. Release them from the blame, the guilt, and the shame, the hurt, the cost that you want to impose on them. Let them go. This is what God has called us to. It is a life of saying, this is a fallen world. We are all sinners. I am one of those sinners. I forgive you. I release you. This is the first step toward calming that rage against the Lord and against others in our own hearts when we don't like the outcomes of our lives. The second thing, or at least uh, in close proximity to that, is simply confess what you have done. Here are the things that I am responsible for. No one did these things to me. I did these things. And so the wrongs that others have done, I'm going to release them from those. I'm going to pick up the wrongs that I have done. And I am going to ask God in Christ for the same release. I'm going to ask him to free me from my guilt I'm going to ask him to cleanse my heart and make me a new person. I'm going to ask for that because that ultimately is what will change all of my decisions into the future. This is very simply the gospel. And it is the thing that changes our decision-making the most. So my question to you is really very simple. Do you believe that Jesus Christ has enough grace to forgive you even at a moment where you realize, I am raging at him, I am furious with him, and I'm furious at everyone around me. Does Jesus Christ have enough grace for you in that moment? He does, and he will give it. And the way forward to receive it is to take your responsibility. That is the decision that is in front of every American Christian today. And it's in front of all of us. Let's take a look at some questions here. Thank you. Can you take a moment, thank you, to discuss the difference between honest, healthy, emotional response to a situation versus the fool's response 
versus a person who is ignoring their emotions? Very good question. So the fool here is giving full vent to uh, his opinion of God and his rage. What's the difference between that person, uh, a fool, and somebody who's just having a healthy, normal, ordinary response to loss, difficulty, and struggle in life? There's a big difference. Um, It is possible for us to express our emotions without inflicting our emotions on others. And it is possible to express our emotions to God without venting them at Him. There's an important distinction to observe here. When you're expressing your emotions, you're talking about what is inside you. When you're venting your emotions, You're throwing accusations at the other people around you, whether they are just, fair, accurate, or not. doesn't matter. It's just, these are my emotions. This is the way I feel. Let me get it out there. I'm going to throw the orange at you. Okay? So the difference here is the fool with a heart full of helpless anger is venting that rage at God, and it is completely unjust. Whereas if you look at David, if you look at any of the other Psalms, wonderful study of the Psalms going on at 9 a.m. that Chris is leading, you're going to find complaint. Lord, I feel this way. Lord, I am grieving over this. I am lonely. I am hurting. I am. It, all of these things are happening to me. I even wonder where you are. There's a big difference between expressing our emotions to God and venting our emotions at Him and at the people around us. There's a spectacular difference between those two things. The person who is having a healthy emotional response will talk about their emotions and will describe what is in their hearts. And that's an important thing to do. Uh, So that leads to the third part of that question. What if you're ignoring your emotions? Look, if you're ignoring your emotions, pretending to be self-controlled, all that's happening is the boiler is still going down underneath there, the steam is still building up pressure, and one of these days it's going to blow. And all of that pressure is going to vent at someone or at God. So ignoring emotions is never the solution to this kind of rage. Uh, We need to express what is inside of us and express it justly and fairly. I hope that helps with that very good question. Uh, Offer up to God the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Uh, The woman with the orange demonstrates how difficult a sacrifice it can be to simply be thankful. How often we're capable of being like her to a less obvious extent. I completely agree with that. Um, the sacrifice of praise, giving thanks, giving to God, is a spiritual discipline. It has always been taught throughout our history as a discipline of heart and mind to say, I will purpose to be thankful. I will tally up what has been good I will look at the blessings and I will give thanks to my God who is good. It changes me. 
when I do that. It's a powerful discipline for um, giving up right worship to God and for preventing um, uh, rage in my own heart. Uh, Job's response to losing family and so much more, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord God and, uh, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is a stunning response that Job gives there. Contrary to the counsel, remember, of his wife, who just curse God and die. It's, it's just all over. And Job hadn't done anything wrong to deserve any of these things. He had not been foolish. He had not been selfish. And yet he saw the Lord take away. And he's, he basically said, if he gives, he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We need this. We need the heart to say, God is king, and I will serve him. Though he slay me, yet will I worship him and honor him. That's what Job said. And um, it's a very important aspect of who we are to be at this time. What is, uh, you can put this a slightly different way, and it's a good way to end. How are we to be a witness to God's wisdom in a society of scoffers? I can't think of any better way than thankfulness and blessing God when it is tough and difficult. There is no better witness than that. That goes right to the heart of who we are to be.